Welcome to Boardroom's Best, the premier podcast for CEOs, board directors, investors, and those who want to lead and serve in the boardrooms of public, private, family-owned, and high-flying entrepreneurial companies. Now with your host, Nancy May, CEO of BoardBench, let's charge ahead with great leaders worldwide as we learn how to foster the best in ourselves and our firms with greater courage, confidence, and character. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to another episode of The Boardroom's Best. I am Nancy May, your host here, and my guest today is Terry Kelly. Now, you may not know Terry's name, but you certainly know the name of the company that she led, which was W.L. Gore, most famous for Gore-Tex products and the sports-related materials. So if anybody is interested or active in the sports world is... I'll say probably over 35. <laughs> Those of us that grew up with this new era of high-performance fabrics are certainly familiar with Gore-Tex. But also the company was very active and involved in many other industries that we do not necessarily know about. And Terry's taken her leadership ability to really drive the multi-billion dollar privately held company as a leader in other public company boards with a philosophy or background interest of looking at how do you drive the the quality of the culture into the whole way a company and an organization evolves and remains successful. So thank you for joining us here today, Terry. It's a pleasure to have you as my guest on Boardroom's Best. Yes, thank you. And I have to remind myself, since I've stepped down from Gore, I'm not really the Gore spokesman, but it's part of my DNA. I grew up in the company for uh, 35 years, so it, it definitely has shaped my thinking about value and leadership philosophy and so forth. Well, we can't remove who we are and where we came from, because quite frankly, that's where we learned our core professional values and principles, correct? Correct. Absolutely. And I think now having a chance to step out of Gore, it's given me the opportunity to reflect, you know, what are some of my key learnings clearly shaped by that background, but also that could be applied to other organizations. So Core was really very well known for its culture. And being a private company, that's a little easier to shape and mold and even adjust over time if you see things going astray. Do you find that to be true and even a challenge to do so from a board perspective now in other companies? I do believe that particularly a founder company where where they're very actively involved in the company, it creates a deeply held belief around the values, the beliefs that just permeate through everything they do. So they, they kind of, it's in their DNA to make sure everyone aligns with that, who gets hired, how they think about their values and principles. Whereas I think the other organizations where there's a lot of different stakeholders, it can get kind of complex. I would say that the public companies that I've been involved with and what makes them so successful is that they are deeply committed and thoughtful about what are the, the values of the company and how do we reinforce that. I get the sense they have to work a lot harder, especially if they're doing a lot of acquisitions. So you're bringing a lot of different people in from different cultures. So they have to maybe spend more time being explicit about it and teaching it and, in, and kind of embedding that in you know their various onboarding processes and so forth. So I think it can be done in both environments. I think it comes naturally in a privately held organization, at least what I've found. But Gore was a multi-billion dollar company. So even though it was privately held, 
you still had that behemoth to manage and oversee. So the entrepreneurial spirit may have been dampered a little bit, or is that not the case because of who they were and how the principles and the values of the company were constantly driven through, or maybe not? So I can absolutely attest to, you know, with scale, you now have to learn new skills. So for Gore, as an example, who was very entrepreneurial, very innovative, the whole culture was kind of aligned around kind of this push the boundaries of innovation. We're going to continue to try new things. Failure was not viewed as a negative. It was just kind of a learning experimentation process. And, you know, fast forward to now a much larger company where you also have to execute. You have to deliver to the customers. You have to improve your efficiency. So whether it's a private company, I say with scale in general, as you have to now master new skills, one of the challenges is how do you straddle those two worlds, right? How do you still value and encourage that entrepreneurial spirit? And then how do you also value and encourage execution? So it kind of requires the ambidextrous organization. It requires straddling both worlds. So on my board activity, I've also seen that happen in public companies where just the sheer growth and scale of the company is requiring some of that same adaptation. So I've been involved in acquisitions over the course of my career, as well as as many of us have. Mergers happen. We get gobbled up by somebody else, or we are, I'll call it the gobbler. Maybe that's (laughs) kind of the way to look at it. But when that happens, bringing those cultures together is very difficult and needs to be intentional. And boards, especially, I've seen have that challenge. When you look at bringing in a new director from another company, understanding the, I'll call it the not invented here syndrome, when you're bringing the two cultures together becomes a real challenge to figure out what is that new mantra, if it even is a new mantra, that you drive through and making sure the message is clear, even from your CEO, because there's a change at the top there too, typically as well. Where are you seeing the challenges in that environment? Absolutely. And I think the first question when you think about acquisitions, you know, we get very deep into the strategic alignment and where do we have synergies and all the things that build the, the case what doesn't get discussed enough is, do we actually believe these two cultures can come together? Having that open discussion you know, with the management of where maybe at a step too far, where we're going to spend so much time on the cultural aspects, we're never going to realize the synergies. And that, that has changed a lot of the conversations in boardrooms to go beyond just the financial strategic plan of why this acquisition makes sense. But do we really believe we can pull this off? Now, I will say, Nancy, sometimes intentionally you need to adapt to a different culture. So it can be strategic to infuse a different organization or different people that are going to bring that thinking, kind of that different perspective. The challenge for leadership is how do you then protect those folks so that they don't just get pushed out of the organization? Because as you said, when you have a very strong culture, it kind of naturally will reject things that don't fit the profile. And I think that's another thing to be very careful of is where do we need to create and adapt to different things we value and how do we allow that to happen and protect those folks so they can actually influence and and make an impact in the organization. God, that's such a huge challenge, especially when you have a large company that's, that's acquiring a smaller one. Not that the smaller one can't be the dull tool. Our, our tendency is to think that the large company doesn't have the nimbleness that a smaller one or one of lesser size may not necessarily have, but it's not always the case. And the fear of moving fast and change is so ingrained in human nature that when you get to that point, breaking things so that you can bring it back together, not just putting a Band-Aid on it, 
becomes huge. It, it does. In, and bringing it to the investors to say, hey, you know, this is not a merger of equals, but this is a merger of great financial s- success, right? And again, this is where, where I've seen it done very well is the, the leadership is very thoughtful about you know, the onboarding process. You know, where do we need to adapt so that we've got to prepare the organization for some of the changes that are coming? That typically what will make or break the success of the integration. And I've seen some organizations, Nancy, where they intentionally leave some of the organization separate because they know it actually can't work all kind of unified together. So they will create different structures intentionally to allow those different activities to happen. So I think that's another key role of the leadership of how do we want to organize, how much should be just embedded into our core business, and how much do we need to kind of keep some separation to allow it to to thrive as well. So a sort of protection, of available protection against these other different groups, correct? Yes, and some of our learning, I'd say, in history is where they're so separate, you never get the benefits of bringing in and infusing kind of that different thinking, mm-hmm. and you get a little bit of the we-they competition. So I think that's another thing to balance is how do you have it separate? enough that it can accomplish what it needs to accomplish, but still be aligned around the broader direction of the organization. And from my history, Gore, you know, we probably have swung from one end to the other, really at the end got it right in terms of how do you embrace both. We called it more the execution arm of the organization as well as the entrepreneurial arm, but they both have to support each other in the overall success of the organization. So you could see kind of a similar philosophy as with acquisitions, depending on the strategy, how do we want to treat this entity and, and how does it fit in our overall organization? It's hard, especially as you get larger, because the entrepreneur, um, being one myself, sometimes we like to go far out on a limb and you can't necessarily do that for the sake of yeah. of survival in, in some larger companies. The structure is, is so important. Absolutely. And that's where just letting those entrepreneurs loose can be dangerous for them as well. And so there does need hey, to be... Hey, wait a, a second. <laughs> You're talking to one. Yeah, there have to be some safety nets around it. And And I will say there also has to be an appreciation that the metrics of success are going to be very different. That's another mistake companies make is, you know, the the metrics that drive the financial performance and kind of the thing that is generating the profits are probably not the best metrics for how you want to value discovery, innovation. And that's another thing learning is how do you be explicit about what is the measure, Nancy, for your success? And and it's still going to be very challenging. So I think this view that the entrepreneurs have it easy, they just kind of run off and have fun while the rest of the the organization is making money. And so if everyone understands they're doing their part, maybe on different time horizons, right? But we need to support each other. I think that's another key role of leadership is straddling those two world and getting the organization to appreciate both. And as you said, it typically breeds different people that are going to gravitate to kind of the core business operation versus those that are really comfortable exploring the the frontier. So that actually involves also from a boardroom perspective, understanding how that works. And typically, I'm going to look back a little bit in history here, typically the boards were made up of the hard charging, the financial driven, large corporate CEOs, 
Not that they aren't still there today and not that that's bad, but the ability to understand the sensitivity of bringing in that innovation in a way that is going to flourish. Yes. And even takes a different kind of mindset in the boardroom, correct? It does. And even spotting where when a shift is required, because I think your strength overplayed, you know, then becomes unfortunately, your weakness, because it just reinforces, you know, we are great at execution. And lo and behold, over time, the entrepreneurial spirit or trying experiments or allowing a different level of risk all kind of gets, as you know, stifled. So that's another part where you kind of can see over time, did we get that out of balance? And I think it's going to be different for every organization based on where they are, right on their on their journey. Are they a startup? versus an established company. And and that's hard. I can tell you as a CEO, when you're right in the middle of it and you're able to get successful outcomes, you've kind of been breathing your own air. And so it does help to have kind of an outside perspective to kind of not, not challenge per se, but to really make sure that the very thing that caused that success is the very thing that might lead to deterioration because it's kind of a blind spot. So I'm going to make a little bit of a shift now. We talked initially about the culture and the principles of Gore and what you knew growing up in that particular environment and then hearing it and seeing it in other companies. But when bringing on and molding a new board or bringing on new board members, how do you set that tone for the new director or even judge to see if the values and principles of that director actually fit within your own culture. The board doesn't always necessarily know what the culture of its own company is sometimes. Right. That's a hard one. Yeah. And maybe that's the starting point, though, Nancy, is are we all aligned about what are the most important values for this organization that is both healthy for the board, but also for the company? Because I think the more explicit you can be about that, I think it then allows you to hone in when you bring in outside directors. And I think a mistake a lot of folks make is they just have their kind of capabilities matrix or competency Mm -hmm. matrix, and they look at the hard skills. And obviously, that's important. You know, we need to have more expertise in the cybersecurity area, or we need to have folks that have more of a global mindset. But I think that's just the starting point that almost becomes the entry place. And I think, you know, to your point, the, the more interesting discussion is probing what are their underlying values that makes us comfortable that they're going to actually be successful as a board member in the organization. And so, again, if you're trying to encourage a more collaborative board, you know, more participative board that maybe can bring different perspectives, you know, you're going to ask those questions to the potential director in terms of how do they like to lead? Because if you find that someone has been very successful, but it's been you know, more in individual success, mm-hmm. they may not be as inclined to create you know, an environment that all the voices get heard. So you can poke at that different ways. Have you seen companies that have made mistakes in that area and say, oh, this person is fabulous. We think that they're totally aligned with us because they are, I'll use the term, great salesmen or women. Yeah. And right? I mean, you yeah. You get so enamored with somebody who sparkles. It's the only way I can describe it. To be maybe extreme, if someone says they haven't made that mistake, I'd be very surprised because... Again, you want to believe, and sometimes it's difficult because the person themselves will actually convey that they have all these values, right? I'm a team player. That's the way I operate. And so there are more sophisticated ways to test that. Sure. Some even do some of the the testing, but it is, you know, going very deep 
in terms of what drives this person and, and what, where, where are they most comfortable in kind of environment. But I think it is that danger of we've got all the hard skills and you kind of are willing to look the other way at how they conduct themselves. And typically, as you know, what goes wrong is those other things. In many cases, mm-hmm. it's not the lack of skills. It, it's definitely more around their values or interpersonal skills or just kind of that misalignment. Well, and the the misalignment is usually not seen till it's too late, correct? It is. I will say it, in a very healthy culture, they figure out very quickly. And when I say they, the individual joining and I'd say the peers around them. Um, and and I, I can speak for Gore. There was a, a real drive to help that person be successful. So it was coming from a very good place. But I think in, in pretty short order, folks can figure out that this is maybe not the environment. And in best case, Nancy, that person decides to opt out, right, that they don't feel this is the right environment versus it has to get to something very extreme where it, it then becomes more of a performance issue. I think the ideal is that you figure it out before they're hired, but if they've made a mistake, that you find a a kind of a nice soft landing for them. Thinking of on the director level, we all have made mistakes in the course of our lives and our careers. How frequently have you seen somebody in the boardroom say, hey, this is not for me. I made a mistake. I shouldn't be here. When in fact, so many people want to get into the boardroom. It's it's a battle in many cases, and sometimes not often pretty behind the scenes right. when there's competition for that seat. Yeah, I've seen less. It takes a big person to say, I, I, this is not for me. Correct. And, and so I think there are probably some additional mechanisms you need to put in place. The role of the chair of the board is pretty critical because they can mm-hmm. set the tone and have that individual conversation. How is this working for you? <laughs> and, and, and maybe draw some you know, deeper reflection of the, of the board member. And then I think there's other feedback mechanisms. I, I think the healthy boards have an ongoing process where the, you know, the, the board members are giving each other feedback, whether it be real time or through kind of a, a set process. And I think the ones that work the best is they don't do it just when there's a problem, right? We're going to have to do this because we need to get rid of X, Y, Z, but it's, it's part of their cadence where every year, every other year, they're doing kind of that, that formal review. And that's a look in the mirror if some of the feedback that comes back is that an individual, for whatever reason, is just not cutting it. And then I think you have a little bit more hard information where the chair can sit down with that person and have a conversation. And sometimes it may be the chair themselves, right? So it can go both ways. And so I think putting posts in place where everyone knows this is kind of how we're going to evaluate ourselves, this is what's expected, albeit they're formal, I think that can also be another mechanism to kind of hold everyone to the same standard. When you've got dysfunction in the boardroom, that is, that's the hardest thing to do because I'll use the term honesty, is not always coming to the top, correct? And that's, again, back to the values of the individual. So as I think about some of the best board members, they're, they're open to constructive feedback. They're willing right. to constructively challenge their peers because they realize that collectively we have to all be successful. So they put the time in to build those relationships and build the trust. And that means you can have hard conversations, not just everyone's being nice to each other, no one's challenging. The highest performing boards and I would say highest performing teams are willing to have that healthy debate, invest the time to get to know each other 
So sometimes there could be just misunderstanding or different perspectives that are not really understood. And so sure. I think giving people the benefit of the doubt, then have an environment where people feel it's, you know, it's part of my obligation to give feedback to the chair or to one of my colleagues if something didn't come off the right way in a meeting. And, and most people appreciate that. So I think that's something you also screen for in your in your board selection is are they open-minded to that? Are they comfortable? Or do, do they not like to be challenged and they've always kind of been right? You know what I mean? <laughs> that probably is warning signs. Right. Be, beware the person who believes their own, uh, yes, their own yes. PR. So that right? screening, yeah. I, I will say one of the boards that I joined Every board member was involved in that process. And normally you, you would relinquish that to your NOMGOV committee. And maybe there's a kind sure. of an informal meet and greet at the end. But what that told me is it matters. And, and we really want to make sure that we're bringing folks in that, that truly want to create the right environment for the board and, and the right you know, environment with management. And, and also having different perspectives because I may see someone and maybe get enamored because of their great skills and have a blind spot. So that sure. also helps in that regard. If that's not your sub- subject matter expertise, that I'm going to be maybe probing for things that others who maybe have similar discipline might not have focused on. So you were on the board and the CEO and on the board of a multi-billion dollar private company, which was originally started by a family. What are some of the things that you've seen in that kind of board structure and the relationship that you had as CEO with that kind of group of individuals that has worked better than maybe public companies and vice versa? Is there any kind of... In general, there are some advantages of being private because there's a more alignment of your key stakeholders and there's more of a long-term view so that you know, you're you're not just focused on delivering financial performance, but I, I think a more holistic view, which I think allows the board, you know, to think more holistically, what is really success for the company? Uh, yes, we want to be profitable so we can sustain, you know, our success, but we also are going to really be thoughtful about other stakeholders. So that's one difference that let me ask you, how active was the family involved in this process, too, or were they just no, beneficiaries? And I think particularly when you have a very strongly rooted founder and uh, family that have been active in the company, they will set that tone for, I'd say, not only the culture of the company, but the culture of the board. Mm-hmm. So they, they will obviously be more in tune to making sure that the folks that are on that board really are aligned with the value. So they may have, a, like I say, a step ahead of being wired, wired to think right. that way. Now, one of the challenges in some families they can get pretty insular so that they don't have necessarily the external perspective. Uh, And so that's where looking at the flip side, you also have to think, where are we breathing our own air? And now we have a board also doing that. How do we make sure we are challenging ourselves to bring in new thinking? And that very thing that became our strength, again, becomes something that doesn't allow us to kind of evolve in it. And so that's probably where you need to be careful where that very strength can play against you in terms of being insular and and creating a board that may be too much of the same thinking. And having grown up in a family business, not the size of Gore, but it's interesting to see, even across other families that I've, I've experienced as well, that the principles and values of the original founder do not necessarily translate from gener- generation to generation 
or even from family member to family member in the same generation, which becomes a challenge in the board environment as well. Absolutely. And I think the best families put time into that, you know, the stewardship of how do we all support the company's success and how are we aligned? And as you said, that becomes harder and harder as you shift down generations or for folks that aren't as directly connected to the company or have grown up in it. But you can be intentional about that as well, of having processes in place that create that alignment. But it's, it's hard work. I think, uh, again, the very benefits of a private family-owned company also has things that you have to look out for and that you have to focus on and invest time in. Do you think it's more difficult to work in that particular environment than a more public environment? I, I wouldn't say more difficult. They have different challenges. Certainly having appreciated being able to take a long-term view, being able to think holistically about performance from lots of different angles gives you a, a degree of flexibility that is not not always there, I think, in the public arena. And even though the folks that I have worked with are in public companies, their own personal mindset is to take a long-term view. And we really want to think about all these things, but it can also be very much influenced by your stakeholder base and your investor base. And so managing that tension, I think, is at a much higher level in a public company than, uh, and all the time required to do that as well. That is time taken away from, again, building the value of the company and building the culture you want. The actual work. The actual work, exactly. So yep, I, yep. Um, I have a new appreciation of just how much of the job is in managing those expectations. And I would say you, you do less of that, I'd say, in a family uh, company, particularly if it's all aligned, as you said, around common values and from the long-term perspective. It's been so ingrained over the course of the history of the company from day one, really, at that particular point in time. Exactly. So actually privileged to have uh, been able to be a CEO in a in a private company. And I probably would take those challenges over some of the challenges that I see folks having to straddle <laughs> in the in the in the public. And and I but I will say what gives me great hope is the great public companies are wired the same way, right? They have a deep understanding of how they create value. They care about their employees. They really spend time really on the culture and on, on the, the people side. I mean, that's what you want to see. And I think it's changing the role, I would also say, of, of board members. I think historically, the board member, it was very much about the numbers. I think you mentioned it's very much about kind of the strict art of governing. We've all learned that you can almost over-focus on that. And then the very little things or most important things that matter to the health and uh, reputation of the company can be damaged. The social pressures that we have now across all societies, not just here in the States, but internationally, has really brought a lot of this out in our companies because we want to see more from them, right? We want to be more engaged. We want to look up to good companies with great products to do what's right. And you look across overseas, so you're on also a European board. Do you see that that's a little different in that environment? Because the tendency to be maybe the, I'm not using the correct word, but more of a a socialist type of mindset where it's the entire community that's always engaged in the company that you serve a broader audience. Right. And they serve you. I would say is more ingrained over there. Yeah. So I do see on one of the boards that I serve, a Dutch company, very focused on all of the stakeholders. And in fact, uh, as I sit on the supervisory board, they don't allow me to hold stock in the company, and which is so different 
so different than yeah. you think about in the U.S. structure. A large part of your compensation is equity with the idea if you're investing in the growth of the company, then you're focused on the right things, where it's, it's actually quite the opposite. But if it's given to you. <laughs> yeah, it's quite the opposite in certain you know, structures in Europe. Because their mindset is, okay, yes, you are responsible to the shareholders, but we have a lot of other stakeholders. Correct. Um, so it's very different. So that kind of gives you a sense of how they have interpreted it and just even how they compensate supervisory board members. But as you can see, that's changing in the U.S. as yep. well. So you see the progressive companies are out in front of that. They're not being forced to do it, but they're kind of out in front of that, where I think in some of the European structures, that's just the way they had to operate and were expected to operate mm-hmm. from the beginning. So we started originally on the whole concept of culture and values in the company and trust. And as our government gets even more actively involved in the way companies are run today, beyond the governance models, the rules and, and regulations, we've got companies like Jewel who are front and center, especially in news today, on how they have marketed to a youth population. But Gore also marketed to a youth population, not in a, in a healthcare environment, but with its own Gore-Tex products. It was young, it was vibrant, it was different. It didn't necessarily potentially hurt or damage a, a customer. Yet Jewel was supposed to be, or other products similar to it, was supposed to be better for us. And yet we could still have our vices. So we can't necessarily have our cake and eat it too. (laughs) When do you say that's wrong or when do you say that's right, especially from a board perspective, when you're talking about trust, culture and values and still need to maintain the health and viability of the company when in fact that's the bulk of your audience? Yeah. So it's kind of this big conundrum, right? It is. And I can't put myself in Jules shoes, but I I can say in Gore and other companies, you're faced every day of, is this a product I can be proud of? Can I, is it really aligned with the values of the organization? Uh, Or do I need to step back and and say, you know, we're not going to benefit from that revenue or profit because it's a step too far. And I think that's maybe another conversation that really is healthy within the board talking with the management is, do we all have the same guardrail in terms of what right. this brand or what this company stands for? And where is it a step too far? Because sometimes I see there can be disconnects where everyone assumes trying to maximize the value of Jewel and we're going to do whatever it takes. And, and so the reward systems and everything you do can reinforce the right or wrong behavior. So I think that's... Well, the same thing happened in financial services reward yeah. systems. So it doesn't necessarily need to be a tobacco or a tobacco-esque company or even a, a pharmaceutical company that might be doing something right. that could be damaging. Fortunately, I, I never had the situation where it was the sole product line that you have to kind of now contemplate versus it being part of a large portfolio where you can kind of say, okay, we don't, we're not going to focus in that area. But I I think this is, again, deep conversation even for those that join that company. Is this something that I'm aligned with? Am I passionate about it? Do I think they have the right guardrails? And in some cases, some industries, you become obsolete because what was okay many, many years ago ends up not being okay. So I think another role the board can play with management is, could we see a scenario where this product becomes obsolete? And do we have plans? And not just the emergency plan, you know, but have we planned out contingency of where this brand might go in the future in terms of what it stands for that will support growth and will support the right, you know, reputation and so forth. And those are really difficult conversations. And I would say the best thing to happen is that you have them 
versus wait until you get the, you know, the attack from outside. And, and right, the have, government's coming in and saying you can't necessarily do this. Exactly. Where you're, you know, now you're very reactionary and, and you have very little time to kind of think those things through and, and come to the right conclusions. And I would say even get your organization aligned around that because everyone's going to come in with very different views on that, Nancy, right? Some will say the more we can sell, the yeah, better. Absolutely. Well, that's- Others say we don't want to sell anything. And how do we take maybe a, a challenge and turn it into an opportunity? Okay, what do we stand for? And how could that be applied maybe in different product lines that now can extend us into the future? And so those decisions don't happen overnight. That really takes a different kind of mindset. Somebody who's willing to be flexible in going in different directions or trying new things, which is not necessarily something that as you get older, you tend to do. So boards are older. I'm putting everybody in the same box here, not necessarily true. But it is something that as we get more comfortable in our own experience, we become a little bit more rigid. And practicing fluidity or flexibility is a difficult task for most people to do. It absolutely is. And I think that's where, you know, you consciously have to challenge yourself. Am I surrounding myself with people that think differently? And that includes board members or management team members that allow us to have, I wouldn't say just a contrarian view, but just bring a different perspective that can be heard. And I think, again, the best companies are able to do that. And it's hard because your very success may be on things that were valued in the past that needed to shift or change. And I would say it's hard, especially when you're right in the middle of it. So I think that's where having that external perspective that can help. And and I think the role of the board is not there to be the critic. Really, we're all in this together. We all are committed to the success of the organization. So how do we to encourage. You know, learn from each other? Yeah. Encourage. And so I think spending time with that relationship is as critical. So it's, it's fine to have the help of the board members, but are they also spending quality time with the key management so that everyone understands we're all here to support each other and hopefully add value. And when you set that up the right way, it doesn't feel like it's an attack, right? right. It, we are, you know, we're all trying to learn, but that takes an investment of time and the right mindset to do yeah, that. And the willingness to be uncomfortable in many situations, including how much time it takes to have a discussion. It may not be a two-day board meeting. It may need to be longer, right? Yes. And, and, and that, to have more frequent conversations as opposed to just four or five board meetings. Correct. And, yep. you know, the trust word comes up often and, you know, you don't schedule in a no, meeting to build trust really. <laughs> so, but I, I think it is being, you know, very deliberate because a lot of it isn't in the formal presentations where people are talking at you. It's building in more time, solving some tough problems together where, you know, everyone's kind of working shoulder to shoulder to do that. And the best boards are very intentional. And I know there's always mm-hmm. that challenge of time where we kind of compress. And then I think you realize, well, maybe we compressed a bit too much where people are flying in, flying out, and we've not allowed for that quality time of, you know, amongst the board members and, and with the management. And so I see a lot of companies being much more intentional on how do we have yep. whether it be strategic retreats or an informal dinner or, you know, we're going to go off site and, and meet a customer. Those kinds of opportunities are really key chances, you know, to build uh, the deeper relationships uh, amongst the the different uh, members. Yeah, what happens between the silence of the words is so important, right? It it is, and it can be left to um, misinterpretation. So as, as you have probably experienced, if the trust level is low or people don't have those relationships, you can misinterpret a lot and not feel comfortable even approaching that person to kind of get an understanding. 
so this stuff can can swell or can bottle up a lot of negative energy. And so I think putting the investment of time, but not just in your pure team building, because I think a lot of folks get turned off where we're doing something, but really direct it to some value-added effort. As I said, going out to the industry to understand more deeply what's the competitive landscape, what are some of the things happening in our in our market, or, or meeting with key customers. There's a lot of downtime when mm-hmm. you do those kinds of trips where you get a different kind of impression and interaction with both board members as well as folks on the leadership team. The stories over the years is that a board is not a team. A board is a collection of individuals that just happens to come together. I think that's changing over time. And boards are starting to learn, if they haven't already, at least the good ones, to actually work as a unit and to respect the differences that are going on, especially as we add more diversity, which is uncomfortable for many in those boardrooms. So it's not just diversity of gender or heritage or background, but also diversity of the experience, which can be very enriching. Where do you see the future of boards going? And are there one or two things that you say are not being done that could be really beneficial in a boardroom or even revolutionary at this point? So I do think we've evolved from the collection of individuals that kind of harkens back to we check the boxes and we have one of them, one of them, one of them. And I think the best performing teams. Uh, what's Still the, going on, though. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, but I would say that, you know, the evolution of that is you are coming to the board and you happen to have a different experience. But collectively, you are contributing to the whole because you've also, I'm sure, been involved in meetings where the expert is sitting there, maybe even half falling asleep because nothing they're talking about is interesting to them (laughs) because it's not in their subject matter expertise. And I would say the, the best board and board members are realizing that they have obviously the other life experiences beyond their subject matter expertise, and they can contribute to that conversation. Because again, sometimes, as you know, you can have your own blind spot because you happen to be wed to this industry or had one experience. And so having the the view that I want to contribute to the whole of the board, maybe I have less to say here, but I I still want to be engaged in that conversation because it's going to make you a better board member. But I think you're going to help enhance the quality of the decisions overall. Oh, by the way, you may actually have a perspective that wasn't brought forward because you aren't breathing that air every day. It's just not, you know, it's kind of that stupid question. Can you, can you help me understand why you guys do that? Intense curiosity and willingness to be vulnerable might be two things that could be advantageous. And you get away with that because you're not expected to know. And it can provoke. I'm trying not to laugh here. (laughs) Absolutely. And not too big of an ego. I mean, I think there are folks that go in thinking if I'm not the the person talking the most (laughs) and the expert in the room, what it does is just shut down the conversation. And so I think kind of monitoring your own behavior, you know, and your own personality, because obviously a lot of board members have been very successful in their careers. But how do you now think of it as peer relationships, right, where we're all coming in with very different perspectives and we're supporting each other? So sometimes it requires adapting new, some new skills. Well, especially when there, when there are many CEOs in a room. Absolutely. And more people who are not CEOs are joining in that at board, which is great to have that complexity of experience and willingness to sort of stretch yourself just because you're CEO doesn't or not a CEO doesn't necessarily 
mean that you might know more than the CEO? Co- correct. And I think what's happening, at least on the boards that I'm on, they're, they're, they are going deeper in terms of just check the box, right? In terms of the, mm-hmm. okay, do we have diversity in uh, our demographics? Do we have diversity in terms of our expertise in certain areas? I think what boards are being challenged, you know, particularly as we talked about some of the real issues companies are facing, you know, maybe more reputational. Right. They are, maybe because they don't have the right values, maybe, you know, they have to kind of adapt some of the product line because it isn't really the direction we need to go. It's going to require different thinking and different perspectives. And so I do think that where it's going is maybe beyond just the check the box governance Mm -hmm. because there's a lot of requirements, as you know. And so if I have any fear is with more and more requirements on the board with the regulations. Compliance oriented. Yep. Yeah. So with all of the things that they have to navigate through to do kind of their day job, how do they allow enough time to really focus on the things that maybe the things that are going to matter the most when it comes to either public opinion or the long-term health and sustainability? And so you see a lot of companies that have gotten in trouble. A lot of them weren't necessarily the, I'd say, the kind of the formal governance issues of do we have the right audit process, et cetera. But it, it is kind of going deeper in the organization to kind of really understand in the DNA, is this, is this healthy in terms of promoting the right kind of values, the right kind of behaviors, the right kind of leadership. And I think the board is going to play a role there. I want to do, as we wrap up, a quick rapid fire, three or four questions, and you let me know what comes up really fast. <laughs> That's dangerous, Nancy. <laughs> It's okay. I will give it a try. All right. Short-term snap-on directors, snap-on, snap-off. So I, maybe not a short answer, but (laughs) I think there's an investment that needs to be made in terms of understanding the organization. So when I think short-term, I think you need to serve five plus years. And then there's probably an end of that window where you actually maybe need to be refreshed. But if I understand your question short-term, I think the transient directors, I think, is it can be damaging because they don't spend the time to really understand the the organization and, and kind of understand, you know, just as we talked about, the very things that's going to really put the organization in a good place for, for success. Okay. Legal counsel on the board, attorneys as directors? So I am not in favor of that, uh, although there are exceptions of folks that think beyond the, their legal boundaries. In fact, I know one situation that the only way they joined the board was that they were not viewed as kind of the council, uh, but they were viewed you know, holistically for what they were able to bring to the table. Obviously, there's a lot of board conversations where legal counsel is present, which makes sense. But as far as them sitting on the board, I think that can be dangerous in terms of kind of what their dual role is and may actually stifle things if not set up the right way. Okay, one more. I'm not, I'm not a big fan. 20-year-olds on public company boards. Let's see, 20-year-olds. I have some board participants that are much younger, maybe not 20, <laughs> but maybe in their uh, late 30s that have been very effective in terms of just really having different experiences, particularly when you think about just some of the digital trends and and kind of living in that whole environment and understanding it and being very comfortable with it can be extremely helpful. I think the caution is, do they also have that maturity 
and um, I'd say confidence to be able to contribute because it can be a little, I'd say, intimidating. So I'm thinking to myself as a 20-year-old, do I have enough of the self-confidence to be able to apply that? And particularly if it's a company that needs to change and maybe they haven't been that savvy, I'll, I'll use digital as an example, is this person really going to be able to influence that in the uh, appropriate way? So I don't want to label folks. They're, if there are 20-year-olds 20 out there that have that level of maturity and appreciation of their role in the governance setting, I think it'd be fine. My hunch is it may be a little bit later. So I don't think it's impossible, but I think it's finding that kind of person. And, and my only caution kind of going back to our earlier conversation is not hiring that 20-year-old just because of their deep subject matter expertise, yeah. but thinking more holistically about what are they gonna to bring to the table? Are they going to be able to work in that environment? So if you screen for that, sure. Sounds like it worked for you, Nancy. <laughs> I wasn't there at 20. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I said, I wish, I wish. Oh, got anyway, it. Terry, thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. And it was good talking to you. Your time has been terrific. It's been a pleasure to have you here as, as my guest. Thank you very much. Oh, enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Nancy. Take care. Boardroom's Best is brought to you in part with the support of Resources Global Professionals, the company that delivers intellectual capital on demand to the world's most recognized companies and corporate leaders. RGP, Resources Global, the experts you want to call when you need experience to solve your business problems. www.rgp.com.